I'm Matt Williams. Welcome to Glimpses, the podcast where we talk about life, love, creativity, and all that spiritual stuff. My guest today is the multi-talented Father Edward Beck. Father Beck is a Roman Catholic priest, a member of the Passionist community, an author of three books, and a media contributor on CNN, as well as other outlets, on issues of faith, religion, morality, and ethics. And besides all that, he's also a gifted playwright. This man is amazingly talented, and I am thrilled to have him on this podcast. Father Beck, welcome to Glimpses. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. You know, when people ask me, what is your podcast about? I say it's primarily about two things, creativity and all that spiritual stuff. And I thought, wow, if anyone embodies creativity and all that spiritual stuff, it's certainly you. Well, that's a nice combination. And I've tried to work on that combination in my life. So I'm glad that you recognize that. <laughs> good, good. Now, let's talk about your creative process. Is there a spiritual aspect when you're creating a book or a play? There definitely is. Um, as you know, the three books that I have written are all based in spirituality. Even the memoir tries to take a spiritual take on my own life experiences. Right. So that's really a jumping off point. And I would say both of my plays really had their origin in spiritual experiences that had to come out of me in some way, that I had to express, and I had no other vehicle by which to do it. Okay, great. And, and when... I, I talked to, when you're creating, I talked to Adriana Trigiani recently on a podcast, and she talks about when she's writing, how she taps into it, mm. and it being God, spirit, whatever you want to label it, and she says, I just have to tap into it, mm. and then I know I'm in the flow. Do you tap into it when you write? You know, I never believed that talk before it actually happened to me. Uh-huh. Um, I heard of writers talking about hearing the character's voice and that they have their own voice after a while, and you kind of become a transcriber for it. And I really did have that experience, especially with the plays. And I can only say that it's my most direct experience of inspiration, feeling like something, and I would call it the spirit, the Holy right. Spirit, working through me to give voice to something. And if that's not inspiration, I'm not sure what else is. I mean, that's the root of the word. And so I have experienced that, especially I would say, in writing the plays. Okay, so when you're writing a play, have you ever had the experience where you think you know where a character's going and then suddenly the character, it doesn't, not, not that you're distorting your play, but the character kind of starts informing you what has to happen in the scene? Most definitely. <clears throat> it takes on its own life and character, and I have found them go in ways that I didn't even want them to go in. And that what I do you do when that happens? Do you put on the brakes or go out for a walk or, or smack the character around and say, behave? What do you do? You know, I think I've learned to let it go. And then if it has to come back in some way or be edited, I have to give it free reign for a while. Um, I, the first play, I didn't even intend to write the first play. I was, I mean, my mother had died of lung cancer. Yes. And I, yeah, yeah. And I uh, was making a retreat on Martha's Vineyard and they gave away my room. And so I was going to have to leave because I couldn't afford to stay anywhere. And a friend of mine said, well, this recently widowed woman has a room in her house. And 
it's like underneath the house, and I think she'd let you stay if you wanted to. And I said, well, that would be great. And she said yes, and I arrived, and I find out she had just lost her husband to lung cancer. Oh, my gosh. And so I would do my retreat in my little hovel. Really, it was a very nice hovel underneath the house. <laughs> and we would have dinner together every night, the two of us. And so you have this priest and this recently widowed woman who were bonding over grief, really. And I was just taking a run one day when I was there, and I thought, isn't that an interesting premise for a play? I mean, this priest moves into this house with this widow, and they bond, and then, as all playwrights or dramatists, then have to ask, what then? What might happen? And right. that was the genesis of the play, but I didn't intend it. It came out of nowhere. I'd never written anything dramatically before. So for me, that was an experience of inspiration. Does she know that she was the inspiration for that? She play? was at when the play opened, and it opened at the Vineyard Playhouse on Martha's Vineyard. They produced it two years later, and she was there at opening night. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Well... Let's talk about that for a second. What's the difference between writing a play and writing one of your books? I know this is creative nonfiction, a lot of memories. I love the human interest stories that you capture. What part of your brain or heart do you have to shift gears in order to go from play to book or book to play? Well, you know, these books were rather scrutinized, especially the first one. When I wrote that first one, it was very God controversial. Underneath. Yes. God Underneath, Spiritual Memoirs of a Catholic Priest. Right. Okay. And it was rather controversial when it came out because some priests and bishops, especially, thought I was too honest in the book and said things I shouldn't have said. Okay. And so I got some letters from bishops and it was kind of... I mean, it did very well, actually, because of the controversy. Uh, it helped the book, actually. But in writing that and the next two books, I realized that because it was nonfiction and because I had to really be very careful about what I was saying, that right. it was somewhat limiting. And so the, the real freedom for me of writing drama and giving creative expression to that was that, look, I could say whatever I want. This is character speaking. It's right. it's a fictional story, and yet I can still talk about issues that I feel are important and that needed to be voiced that maybe I couldn't do in a book or from a pulpit, but in a play I can do, and I have, and I found it very liberating, actually. That's great. Yeah. I think that that's wonderful. I, um, I have a quote. I pulled a couple quotes from God Underneath. I have learned to trust stories to communicate spiritual wisdom. Stories can also inspire and heal because they connect us with the loving vitality of soul in each of us and make it conscious to us. Hmm. And I thought, I love that. I pulled those, those two lines because stories connect us. They awaken consciousness. They remind us of our shared humanity. So when you write a book, what do you, is that what you want your books to do, what we just described? Or what do you want your books to do? I know what they're about. I think that... <sighs> Look, for me, books make me feel less alone. And if I read a book and I connect with it, and whether it be the story or the characters, if, you know, if it's fiction or if it's nonfiction, somehow it makes me feel less alone if I can identify with it and it speaks to me. So I think the reason why I wrote the books was because I wanted to have a shared experience with other people who may see themselves in something of what I was writing. And so I've had people from that first book say, you know, I've never been a priest. I'm not Roman Catholic. I didn't grow up in Brooklyn. 
and yet I identified with your experience and the meaning you derived from the experience, and that's what mattered to me. That's all I really wanted. Do you know what you just triggered? Because I know you're a huge fan of Anne Lamott's writing, as am I. Mm -hmm. In fact, I have calligraphy, and I'm going to butcher the quote, but it's her quote about why does writing matter? Why do our words matter? It's like being in a boat with a group of people in a storm. You know, your words and, and we're singing together. It doesn't stop the storm, but we know we are in this together. Mm. And that and her whole point is we are not alone. Books connect us. So yeah. we do have, whether you're a Roman Catholic priest or you're a Buddhist or a Hindu or whatever, there is a common shared humanity. And we're all kind of seeking the same thing. I think right. so, too. And I think that in her book, you do find that. I've had the privilege of interviewing Annie, and she's a friend. And I think that's one of the reasons that she writes. And she'll tell you that is because it connects her to people in a way that nothing else does. Yeah. Yeah. Well, also, I want to know, when did you decide to be a writer? You're a kid knocking around Brooklyn. Did you get a divine nudge? Did an angel tap you on the head? Did you wake up one morning and say, I'm going to write books and plays? How, how did that happen? You know, it really was, again, totally unintentional. I had been ordained a priest, I guess, around 10 or 15 years already. So I guess I was, um, I don't know, almost 40 years old at the time. And I took, I had a sabbatical and I took a writing class at NYU, a memoir class. Okay. And it was just, you know, a continuing ed kind of class. And about four weeks into the class, another student in the class said to me, um, you know, your stories, um, I have an agent friend that I want to connect you with because I think that you have the beginnings of a book. So I said... Did you know it was a book? No, I wasn't intending to write a book. I was just writing little pieces uh -huh. for... And that, those were the, that was the genesis of God Underneath. So she put me in touch with her agent friend and she wanted to see what I had done. And so basically they were some of those essays. And she said, okay, uh, let's... I'm going to... I want to represent you and take this on. And they... Within two weeks, Doubleday gave me a contract. <laughs> come on. You, you're pissing off a lot of writers right now. There's, there's writers listening to this going, come on. I know. Th that's and not right. That's not it's fair. It's not. It's really not fair because I know how long people, you know, take to get a book published. And, you know, uh, I mean, I've heard your writings and the book you're working on. And I, I think I identified with them because they're so autobiographical and yet so spiritual. And that's exactly what I try to do. With God I, underneath. I must admit, uh, uh, yes, Glimpses is the book, and it's it's a, it's a memoir told through humorous essays and what I call spiritual musings, and mm -hmm. it's always about finding spirit. And I must admit, reading your three books, I went, oh my gosh, we read the same authors. We have the same <laughs> quotes. I'm going to get to some of those quotes. And some of the quotes you use in your book, I use. And wow. I went, there, there is an overlap here. But I'm going to circle back to getting a publishing deal like yeah. that. <laughs> Uh, but you had been a priest. You had been talking to people. You had been telling stories. You had been communicating. So it wasn't like you started in a vacuum. You had been a storyteller for a number of years before you put the words on the page. True, and I believe that's the only effective means of preaching is to employ story in preaching and narrative in preaching, whether it be your own or somebody else's. I think that's what engages a listener in a preaching moment as well. So I had been preaching, and that was actually my ministry. I traveled all over the country giving retreats. That's what I did. Right. And so you're right. I had a certain facility for storytelling. It was kind of in my bones. So I just had never written them down as I did in that class and began that process. But I just never intended 
to write a book, and I didn't know I was even a writer until I started to do it, I think. You know, you mentioned preaching and storytelling being an effective means. And when I first moved to New York and I was knocking around, unemployed actor, scraping by, I went to Norman Vincent Peale's church, Marble Collegiate. And he was still alive at the time. And his stories were mag. I still remember 40 years ago some of the stories he told from the pulpit because they were so impactful. Yep. I think it's the most effective means yeah. of... I'll go back after giving a retreat somewhere five years later, and they won't remember anything else I said except a few stories that I told. Oh, I remember this story, and that's what they remember. That's what sticks. Well, I want to... <clears throat> speaking of pulling quotes and overlapping... Um, uh, fear and love comes, becomes a theme uh, in some of your writing. It's certainly in mine. But you pulled a quote out and used it in Soul Provider. Uh, Do the thing you fear, and the death of fear is certain. I have that. I have a small farm in the Hudson Valley, and I've got wooden plaques with carvings, biblical quotes and inspiration. And carved in a stone, I have that very quote, Do the thing you fear. Mm. And the death of fear is certain. But you attribute it to Mark Twain. I always thought it was Ralph Waldo Emerson. So oh. I, I went online, and it says, yes, Twain said it, but so did Emerson. Ah, so they both stole it from somewhere. They stole, yeah, yeah. They, they're just borrowing, right? But do the thing you fear. And, and one of my favorite Bible quotes is, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Mm. Do you believe that? Do You know, uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who you reference talked about the two primary emotions that drive us are fear and love. Mm-hmm. Do you find that? I do in the sense that, you know, we, we think of hate as the antithesis of love. But I think if you look at all forms of hate, you can see that they're derived in some fear. I mean, racial prejudice yes. is, you know, has its origin in fear of the unknown, the fear of the other, the, di- the one that is different than... And so I really do think that we wind up hating or disparaging that which we fear a lot of times or don't understand. And so that's why I think you can say that the opposite of love is really fear, because I think fear also shuts us down from being vulnerable. You know, yes. we're afraid of letting somebody in. That, yes. that word vulnerable means to be wounded, and most of us don't want to be wounded. But don't you think we live in the age of fear right now? I think we sell toothpaste in cars using fear, politicians mm-hmm. get elected with fear, world leaders use fear to manipulate the masses, right? Yep. And you know that uh, I've heard a biblical scholar once say that in the Bible, it's attributed to God as saying, do not fear, do not be afraid, 366 times. And this guy said, once for each day of the year and once for leap year. <laughs> That's <laughs> but he said he actually counted it up. And it's it's one of the most attributed quotes to God in the scripture. Do not, not be afraid. Fear. Do not fear. That's that's wonderful. Yeah, but it's tough for us to listen to that admonition, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about glimpses, because when I write about glimpses, I'm talking about finding little glimpses of God mm. in your daily life. And mm. by God, I'm talking moments of tenderness, kindness, unexpected compassion, right? When was the first time you glimpsed God? Oh, boy, that is a tough question. I mean, people often ask, did you grow up religious, you know, in a religious house, and she became a priest? And I, I really didn't. I mean, we were, I was baptized Catholic, and I did go to Catholic school. So I had nuns, and I went to a Catholic high school, but I was not 
other than going to mass on Sunday, you know, with my family, overly religious at all. Um, and I think that if you, if you want to know the first glimpse of God, I'm sure it came before this, but it, I had to go on this retreat in high school. Uh, it was a forced retreat because it was an all-boys high school, Catholic school, and they shipped us out to Shelter Island. Long way. Yeah. And the Passionists, the religious order that I belong to today, had a retreat house for teenagers on that island. And so there I was with 50 of my barbarian classmates for a weekend. And what I saw happen that weekend in these guys that I thought I knew and that I had gone to school with and you know played sports with and mingled with, it was totally transformative. I mean, somehow these priests and brothers got to them in a weekend and got to me in a way I had never experienced before. Really? Was it just compassion, listening? Was it drawing things? I mean... <laughs> it, it was what they said. It's how they lived. It's how they treated each other. It's that they seemed to carry around peace with them in a way that I hadn't seen a lot of people able to do. And I think it took me aback because I, I realized that whatever they had, it was intangible, but I wanted a piece of it. And I wanted to how they got it. And it just stuck. Yeah. And, and I went on. I mean, I, I worked on Wall Street then my first year of college, and I was studying. Uh, I was going to get a brokerage license, and I was going to go into finance. And that's what I was going to do. And it was such a miserable year working on Wall Street. And I thought, God, I, you know, I can't see myself doing this for the rest of my life. Right. And I just called up that retreat house that I made a retreat in high school. And I said, you know, I don't know. I'd like to reconnect. He said, come out this weekend. I said, well, I wasn't thinking of that, like this weekend. <laughs> he said, well, you called me. Oh, there so, you go. you know, I took the Long Island Railroad out, and they didn't tell me there was no retreat that weekend. So I get there, and it's me and five guys, priests and brothers, on this island for a weekend. And I just, like, shared their life with them for the weekend, just me and these priests and brothers. And I guess that same, that peace, that same connectedness, returned and I said, you know, uh, if, if this isn't it, uh, they have something. And it really began my path. And I think, I think that's how faith is passed on through people who model something um, that we want, that we desire. And that's a glimpse of God. Yeah. yeah well, I'll butcher the uh, Francis of Assisi quote, you know, isn't it go out and preach the gospel and if you must use words. Yep. You, you, their example, mm -hmm. their kindness, their behavior is just what inspired you. Yeah, and I think, you know, when you use glimpses as the title, I think that that's how we get it. It's, you know, we believe Christianity does in an incarnate God, God who becomes flesh, literally. Yes. You know, so how else is that in flesh, but in, you know, experience and people and family and marriage and friendship? And I think, you know, uh, that's how we get those glimpses. So you just described a huge glimpse that changed your life out at the retreat. Mm -hmm. Do you see glimpses in your daily life here in New York or when in your travels? You travel quite often. You're on TV. You're always traveling. Do you mm -hmm. see glimpses in airports and subways? I do. I do. Uh, I think the, the challenge is to notice them and take them in and not pass them by. And I think they're, it's, it's easy to become inured to the experience of it because it can seem so very ordinary. And I think that if there's an attentiveness 
you know, it's, it's one of the spiritual virtues to be present in a moment right. and to be attentive. And yet that's a certain discipline to be able to do that and to look at ordinariness and see extraordinariness uh, in well, it. Well, in Soul Provider, which I never knew what uh, the, uh, the ladder of ascent was yes. until I read your book. And when I read Soul Provider, Spiritual Steps to Limitless Love, I can literally show you the pages scribbled up. I went through and underlined and circled and wrote in the margins, so I hope you're okay with that. I'm sure. <laughs> messing up your book. I like that. But what I appreciate and really appreciate about your writing, it's very thoughtful. You're obviously highly intelligent, but it's very human and it's accessible. Mm. So when I read any of your books and even Unlikely Ways Homes, all these personal stories, it's accessible. And uh, I wanted to ask you, do you, when you write a book, do you imagine one reader? Do you have one person in mind who's going to crack open that book on the subway, the beach, or in an easy chair and read your book? No, I can't say that I imagine one person, but I do imagine, um, <laughs> you know, uh, I had a very interesting mother and she was quite a character. And there are some stories about her in God Underneath. And she would say to me, like after a homily, if she came to one of my masses, she would say, it was good, but get rid of those big words, <laughs> you know, or, you that's know, good. it was okay, but that's, that's part got boring. And she was like a great audience because she was unfiltered. And she told me exactly what she thought, and she didn't like something. And, I, and so a lot of times I would think, well, what would she think about this? Or if I was preaching this homily, what would she say about this? And it's a great filter because she was such an ordinary, like down-to-earth, accessible person. And I thought that honesty really kept yes. me honest. Yeah. And so I do sometimes and have thought, you know, what would she say about this? And you know, it's kind of caused me to edit a few things here and there, but... Um, well, she molded and shaped you very well, because yeah. these books are so readable, and honestly, I thought, well, I'll, I'll kind of flip through and understand what they're... And I got pulled in, I got emotionally connected, especially mm. to the characters mm. and the stories of these books. Yeah. And again, it's going back, they're stories. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't feel you're being pedantic. You're not preaching. These are human stories that just happen to be filled with spiritual wisdom. Right. And I think that's an amazing accomplishment. Well, I mean, I think, again, I, I found in my own experience that that's how I was led to spirit, through experience and human experiences and other people. And it's the preaching that I most resonated with. And so... And the preaching that I do that people most resonate with. And so I thought if I could do that in books then that's what I want to do. That's the best way to communicate a message is through story and common experience. Well, I know you lead a lot of retreats, right? Do you, or have you, ever used Soul Provider as a guideline in your retreats? Or is each retreat specific in and of itself what the topic or the issue is that you're addressing? I've never used um, one of my books to tell you the truth. It, it, it kind of, I guess, seems to me too self-referential or something. Okay. So I, I haven't, but I, I, I certainly have used ideas from them um, in the retreats. But I, usually the retreats are more specific around a certain theme. Okay. And Could you tell me like a, a topic or two or a theme or two what the, the retreats would be about? Um, well, I, I did one on, and interestingly, we talked about it before, love and fear. Yes. And so I would go into a parish and I preach at all the weekend masses. So a lot of parishes will have like eight masses on a weekend. And so I'll preach at all of them and introduce myself to everybody who comes on a Saturday and Sunday. And then I'll invite them to the retreat. 
And so if they like what they hear on Saturday and Sunday, then they'll usually show up and they don't know what they're getting. They'll right. just, you know, they'll come. And I usually try to give something during that retreat, uh, whatever the theme is, that one on love and fear was kind of what we were talking about before. What are our experiences of love and fear and why do they battle each other and how do we overcome them and how does God, that quote that you said, you know, perfect love casts out fear. How, how does that look in experience? What does it look like? And because I think some of these quotes or some of these spiritual concepts are really nice in a pie-in-the-sky ethereal kind of way, but how do they become practical for people? Yes. How do they, you know, experience it? And I think that's what I try to do in the retreats is how in your experience does this make sense? So I want to talk about the retreats that you've run. And I'm intrigued to know, is there a common denominator or theme that you find in all these retreats? So when people gather, what is the commonality? Is there an issue well, I'm going to steal the commonality from one of my favorite theologians, Sebastian Moore, who has a quote that says, we all desire to be desired by the one whom we desire. Oh, great. That's wonderful. <laughs> and I think that everyone who comes to that retreat is desiring something. And it's, you know, it's kind of when you kiss, you want to be kissed back. Yeah. And I think we want that experience from God and we want it from other people. And I think that's the longing of the human heart. And you know, that, that Bruce Springsteen song, everybody's got a hungry heart. And I think we hunger in different ways and the manifestation of it is different for different people. But I think that's the common experience. That's why people show up because they want something. You know, when I was a kid, I remember um, a, a nun talk, say, say something like, you know, figure out what you really want, what you really desire, and do the opposite. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's crazy. I mean, that's because desire, I mean, is the beginning of discipleship. You don't go after something or anyone unless you want something, unless you need something. Yes. And to me, that's the grace. And so it's getting in touch with the desire and how does it get channeled and how does it get satisfied and healthy and, and good ways. But um, I think desire is what brings people to the retreat. Yeah, okay, great. great. Yeah. And I know, uh, having read all your books, uh, silence, you spent a lot of time in silence mm. on these retreats, mm. and silence is where you find God. And I pulled some quotes that, again, I think this is from Soul Provider. The Benedictine monk David Stendhal Rast calls silence God bathing. Mm. And Thomas Merton said silence is the mother of truth. Thomas Keating calls silence God's first language. So silence is so utterly important, but how do we find silence and stillness in a monkey chatter world, Instagram and TV and all the stuff that you work in, I've worked in in the past, and the city we live in, how do we find that still, that still quiet place where we find God? How do you do it? With great discipline, I mean, it really has to be cultivated because you have to find a space for it. I, and you, as you know, in that first book, I wrote about 30 days in a hermitage yes. in Big Sur. And I thought, oh, this will be no big deal. I'll be in a hermitage on the side of a mountain in a little trailer for 30 days. It'll be great. You know, I won't have any trouble. And I thought, 
after the sixth day, I would go out of my mind that I could never do this for 30 days, you know, be like not talk to anybody and just, you know, be listening to these animal calls and, you know, the wilderness and, but I guess by, really by the seventh day, interestingly, I guess, you know, the seventh day <laughs> There's is... There's a reason for that. <laughs> yeah. Something began to calm inside of me um, where I not only got used to it, but I liked it. I got into a certain rhythm of it. And I remember at the end of that retreat, which was very transformative for me, um, I thought I need to be able to take something of this back even to the busyness of my life and world so that I have to create this hermitage space somehow. Right. And I think I, I, I'm afforded the opportunity in that I live with other priests and I, I live in a setting that has a chapel and I, I have my own room and, you know, a, a room of one's own, literally, as Virginia Woolf calls it. Right. I, I think you create your own room and you, you find it and you spend just a certain amount of time there each day, whether it be 10 or 15 minutes, but you cultivate it and you protect it. And I think that's what I try to do. And when you have that quiet time, do you hear your spirit voice? Do you hear that voice inside? I hear a lot of chatter and a lot of distraction from most of the time. And if I really once in a while get settled and I once in a while can pay attention, I think I do hear that spirit voice. But it's a rarity for me. It really is work for me to get there. Yeah, yeah. You use the word discipline. Mm. And I think people... Uh, of all faiths think, oh, it's just constant ecstasy. Oh, well, I'm praising God. You know, no, it, you have to work really hard, I find, to find that time to shut off the monkey chatter, to sit still and really open your heart. And that really does take discipline. In fact, I, I want to reference something. Mm -hmm. Tish Harrison Warren, who wrote in her book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, she referenced a study that was done, and I think it was at the University of Virginia, you may know about this, where they locked people in a room with no phone, no TV, no stimulus, to sit still for 15 or 20 minutes. Mm. Or they had the option, if they got bored or restless, they could push a button and give themselves an electric shock, a painful shock. Something like 63% of the men and 47% of the women, I don't remember the exact percent, couldn't sit still for 50, they would rather give themselves an electric shock huh. than sit alone with their own thoughts. Interesting. And I thought, doesn't that reflect the world, or at least the city and other parts of this country where we live? Well, I think its origin, though, is it just doesn't seem productive. We're so used to needing to be productive and to feel productive. Oh, yes. That yes. you just sit and waste time seems counterintuitive to us. I mean, why would we do this? What's the benefit from doing this? And I think culturally we're told it's a waste of time, that you need to do something, you need to produce something, and unless you're doing that, it's not valuable. That is so insightful because it took me years and years to learn that I am not my to-do list. Yeah. And I thought I was. I thought every day when I checked off my to-do list, I went, oh, and I went, no, sometimes do nothing mm -hmm. and do it really well. It's right? really hard though. I want to talk a little bit about uh, heaven, because in Soul Provider, again, you can tell how much I marked up this book, mm. you discuss an anthropomorphic understanding of heaven, that place, you know, and I grew up pearly gates and gold and cherub strumming, and, you, and this is a quote from your book, and it really resonated with me. We come from the life and love force of that God 
and will eventually return to it. When our spirits exist wholly and completely within the spirit of love. Mm. So is that your idea of heaven? Our energy, our spirit energy, or whatever you want to call it, the labels get in the way, will return back to that spirit energy, which is love of God? That's probably the, the clearest that I can fathom it, because it's such an unfathomable yes. uh, concept as far as what does that look like or mean. You know, and you know, people say to me, well, will I see my parents? Or will I see my pets? Will I know them? Will it be that kind of... And I, I, I have no answers to any of that. Yeah. All I know is that there's something about us that is beyond the physical. Yes. There's something about spirit and the essence of who we are that I don't believe dies, that I believe lives on. And it's the Catholic notion, I think, of the communion of saints. And there is that connectedness and that bondedness to that which is gone and those who have gone before us that we will experience a reconnection with. And I can only say that that's love. It's the most powerful force I know. And the scripture says, you know, God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God in that person. So to me, I don't know a better definition than that. That's perfect. Yeah, that's perfect. Mm. Well, I want to ask you one more question, and that is uh, a young writer or playwright comes to you and says, Father Beck, I really want to write, and I want to make books, and I want to do plays. What advice do you have for me, Father Beck? I would say write with what you are passionate about and don't self-censor yourself. Uh, at least in the beginning, you'll have others who will want to do that for you right. eventually. But you have to really care about what you write about. And it doesn't have to be autobiographical, it doesn't have to be a memoir, but it has to be an investment in the characters or the story uh, or your own life experience if you're writing about that. But you have to be passionate enough about it because it's a lot of time and it's a lot of discipline. And it's a lot of aloneness, you know, speaking of solitude, writing is a very solitary act and you have to make space for it. Right. And sometimes you sit down and you can be there for an hour and nothing comes, you know, and talk about feeling like you're wasting time. Um, but Anne Lamott says, you know, you have to keep your butt in the chair Yes. and you have to, you have to just put in the time and eventually hope for that inspiration uh, that we talked about. And I think that that's, you know, write what people say, write what you know. I'm not sure that's always true. I've written stuff that I didn't necessarily know, I think. But certainly, I've always written stuff that I'm passionate about and uh, that I was willing to give the time to. And I think that's probably the best advice I would give. Great. Well, all I can say is thank you for being a guest on Glimpses. Um, I look forward to reading more of your books and seeing your plays. Uh, this has been a treat for me. Thank you, Matt. It's really been my treat. and. Uh, Best of luck with your book and your work and this great work you're doing through the uh, podcast. It's really uh, a service, I think. Good. Thank you so much. And that's it. So, And thank you for listening to Glimpses. Uh, as you go out and about your day, just remember to take the time to look around and catch a glimpse. <laughs>